Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the personal computer, the computer mouse, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That's a pretty good list of things, of some pretty important things from the second half of the 20th century. But what links all of them? Well, LSD had a great impact on the creation of all of them. But what is LSD, or lysergic acid dialthamide? Considering it's probably the most controversial item we'll be discussing on this podcast, I think I need to start with a few caveats. To label LSD a drug, and to categorise it in the same way as something like heroin or crack cocaine, is mendacious, and yet perpetuated by 50 years of lies and misinformation. There is almost nothing that links LSD with other types of quote-unquote hard drugs. Whilst millions of people die from opium and other drug overdoses, there has never been a death from LSD. LSD is an extraordinarily powerful substance that should be treated with caution and respect, but to treat it in the same bracket as heroin, crack or meth, as it has the same drug classification as those substances in the US and Britain, is idiotic. The intense effects of LSD are well attested to, and have been attributed to helping many inventions and movements since its invention. So I'm not going to go too far into this podcast about the effects of LSD, other than to say they're profound. There has been 50 years of songs, films, books and talks about the powerful effects of LSD, all of which will probably get closer than I could about describing the effects, although none of them have quite managed to capture what it is about this substance that has fueled so much creativity. Nevertheless, a dictionary definition is perhaps needed. LSD is a hallucinogenic drug that effects include altered thoughts, feelings and awareness. It can induce both auditory and visual hallucinations and often lasts for as long as 12 hours when on a trip, as experiences are called. Despite being listed as a Schedule 1 drug in America, meaning by this classification it has no medical use in treatment, this has come under some intense criticism. It is plainly wrong to say that it has no medical benefits, and this is something we will get onto later in the podcast. However, as with all inventions, LSD had to be invented. Albert Hoffman, a Swiss chemist, joined the pharmaceutical chemical department of Sandoz Laboratories in Basel. He began to experiment with lysergic acid to try and find a chemical compound that would stimulate the respiratory and circulatory systems. On November 16th, 1938, he first synthesised LSD, but then set it aside for five years and did nothing with it. After five years, he decided to have another look at this substance he had created. Hoffman resynthesized the LSD, and accidentally absorbed a small amount of it through his fingertips, whereupon he began to describe what the effects were. He described the experience of the drug as, quote, being affected by remarkable restlessness, 
combined with a slight dizziness. At home I lay down and sank into a not unpleasant, intoxicated-like condition, characterised by an extremely stimulated imagination. In a dreamlike state, with eyes closed, I found the daylight to be unpleasantly glaring. I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colours. After about two hours, this condition faded away. Close quotes. Three days later, Hoffman performed another experiment upon himself to see what he'd actually made. He ingested 250 micrograms of the substance, and an hour later, the first intentional acid trip was underway. Hoffman experienced what can only be described as a trip. 250 micrograms is a strong trip, far stronger than he would have taken three days previously. And the sudden change in perception from taking 250 micrograms freaked him out, meaning a lab assistant had to take him home. As was customary in Basel, they made the trip home by bicycle, with Hoffman feeling himself going insane with strong levels of anxiety and thinking the LSD had poisoned him. A doctor arrived to check up on Hoffman and confirmed there was nothing wrong with him at all, and the only issues he could see were dilated pupils. Over the hours, Hoffman began to enjoy the experience he was having. He described the experience later like this, quote, Little by little, I could begin to enjoy the unprecedented colours and plays of shapes that persisted behind my closed eyes. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surged in on me, alternating, variegating, opening and then closing themselves in circles and spirals, exploding in coloured fountains, rearranging and hybridising themselves in constant flux. Close quotes. Like many great inventions, they have their own origin myth. The internet has a spurious one, perhaps, in Al Gore creating it. The telephone has a mostly true one, with Bell in the telephone. Gutenberg in his printing press is of course true in Europe, but it's not true in China to say that Gutenberg invented the printing press. But the bicycle story is LSD's creation myth. April the 19th would later be named Bicycle Day, after Hoffman's ride home on a bicycle. The day enabled Hoffman to realise he had made a significant discovery. Something that was, in very small doses, able to cause shifts in consciousness and, he believed, could become a powerful psychiatric drug because of the introspection that one feels when you're on it. Indeed, to this day, on many LSD blotters, it is common to see a bicycle and a caricature of Hoffman on his bicycle. Hoffman was initially right that LSD would be used in clinical and psychiatric use. Being brought to the USA in 1949, the drug began to be researched and its use grew. Undergrad psychology students began using the drug and describing the effects, while Time magazine published positive reports about the drug in the mid-1950s. By the mid-1950s, the drug was used on people with mental health issues by psychoanalyst Sidney Cohen, who began experiments on the drug, testing its impact on creativity 
and its use of patients with personality disorders. The drug during this time was well respected, with use in clinical matters and other hallucinogenics, leading to 1,000 clinical papers, dozens of books, and six international conferences, all on the use of hallucinogenics and LSD. Movie star Cary Grant was one such example of a patient being given the drug for clinical reasons. The most famous early proponent was Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World. He wrote much about psychedelics. In May 1953, he first tried mescaline and published a book about his experiences called The Doors of Perception, which is where the Jim Morrison-fronted band The Doors gets its name. In 1955, Huxley first tried LSD, and it was Huxley, perhaps more than any other, who glamorised and popularised the psychedelic experience. It wasn't long before the CIA heard about the effects of LSD, and this, remember, was the height of the CIA's power. And in the infinite wisdom of the CIA, they came to think that this drug might be used as mind control. Hundreds of people, CIA agents, government employees, military personnel, prostitutes, the general public, and mental patients were all given LSD and tortured to see the effects of the drug and whether the drugs could be used to break prisoners or induce a confession. The study was large in scope, but in the end it was decided that it was too unpredictable to use in the way they were looking for. MK Ultra was indeed a waste of time. Recreational experiments of LSD continued with psychologists and evangelists for the drug. Names such as Timothy Leary, a Harvard psychologist, may be familiar to you, and Alfred Hubbard, who is believed to have introduced 6,000 people to LSD, and people in all walks of life. In Storming Heaven, LSD and the American Dream, J. Stevens says that in the early days of LSD's use, there were two different groups of users. One group was the conservative view that LSD was too dangerous to be allowed and shouldn't be spread too far or too wide. It should be used by elite members of society, such as artists and scientists, who would spread the learning through society from up on high. The second was Timothy Leary's approach that LSD could revolutionise society and it should be spread to all far and wide. As the 1950s spread to the 1960s, this second group grew and grew, and for a time ran out the winner. The origins of the psychedelic movement, as this new movement was called, comes from a couple of places. The growth of marijuana use on folk rock was, in this respect only, a gateway. Songs such as I Feel Fine and the Rubber Salt album were seen as the Beatles' weed album. Author Ken Kesey, whose involvement in MK Ultra and the sights he saw would prove inspiration for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, he began holding what were called acid tests, which in reality were acid parties. Remember, LSD was still legal at this time. It was this psychedelic movement which quickly grew into part of the counterculture in general. 
In spring 1965, John and Cynthia Lennon, George Harrison and Patty Boyd, were at a dinner party with a dentist friend of theirs, John Riley. Riley spiked drinks of theirs with LSD, and when the foursome began to notice the perception change, they knew something was up. Leaving in a huff, they went to a club as the drug started to peak. They both later described their experiences, Lennon stating, quote, We were just insane. We were just out of our heads. We all thought there was a fire in the lift, but it was just a little red light. And we were all screaming, all hot and hysterical, close quotes. While Harrison said, quote, I had such an overwhelming feeling of well-being, that there was a God, and I could see him in every blade of grass. It was like gaining hundreds of years of experience in 12 hours. The two later on became the more enthusiastic members of the group about LSD, with McCartney only later taking it. The growth of the Beatles and other psychedelic rock bands led to a sort of moral panic by more conservative users of LSD and non-users alike. In 1966, LSD was banned in the UK, while California banned it in 66 too, as the rest of the states in the US followed. Had LSD continued down the medical and clinical side, it probably would not have been banned, but the use, misuse and glamorisation of the drug led to this sort of moral panic in the mid-60s, leading to its banning. And there's nothing more than tabloids and the old like more than a moral panic. While a small minority of people might have been put off by the drug being made illegal, it was still incredibly cheap and widely available, especially in the quickly growing hippie community. Some of the reason for the massive growth in LSD was advocates like Oswald E. Stanley, who produced a chemical not for profit, but because they believed it benefited humanity. He manufactured the stuff en masse for many of the psychedelic rock bands of the day, such as The Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane. This created a circle of use, as it was popularised by the leading bands of the day, leading to more people wanting to try LSD and then support from the psychedelic bands, leading to the psychedelic bands becoming ever more popular. Even the biggest mainstream bands of the time, the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, had well-publicised psychedelic phases. Many of the greatest albums and songs of all time come from this hippie period of music, and to listen to it is to hear the influence of LSD. When people say drugs aren't good for anything, you can play them Sgt Pepper, Pet Sounds, White Rabbit, Good Vibrations or early Pink Floyd. The hippie community, with their peace, love and understanding mantra, are, and perhaps were, maligned for their ostentatious use of the drug. But it should be said they were largely peaceful and well-intentioned, even if they were politically naive. But the lack of use to society that many thought LSD caused worried authorities. People were rebelling and authorities never liked rebellion. Especially rebellions that caused people to go off-grid against the system and not join the workforce and pay tax. No government is going to like a substance that seems to encourage people to drop out of work and become a bum.
So what many people see is the high point of LSD in popular culture with its use in the 1969 Woodstock Festival. With 400,000 people attending, it was seen as the high point of the 1960s love and understanding that LSD had helped to promote. As one scholar put it, quote, Yet, in tune with the idealistic hopes of the 1960s, Woodstock satisfied most attendees. There was a sense of social harmony which, with the quality of music and the overwhelming mass of people, many sporting bohemian dress, behaviour and attitudes helped to make it one of the most enduring events of the century. Close quotes. The late 1960s had seen a few disasters for the hippie community. The Charles Manson murders, the disastrous Alamont Free concert which led to the death of Meredith Hunter, the mental decline of Brian Wilson and Sid Barrett, sometimes said to be caused by LSD, the death of Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison, and the Beatles' move away from psychedelic music and the eventual breakup, all changed the music landscape. The 1960s was ending. But it can be said, I think, that LSD's longest-lived influence did not die with the music. While the large-scale LSD community in California that sustained the hippie community was to die, some diehards would not let the movement die. This new generation would continue at Stanford University, and it would continue in the personal computing revolution. If one were to look at the facts in the 1960s and 70s and wonder where a PC revolution might have come from, you would have to say New York. It had IBM and world-class universities around the area, such as MIT and Harvard. However, the LSD generation were entering the workforce, and as Wendy Grossman put it, quote, clean-cut, military-style, suit-wearing, big-iron approach of the East Coast that, in its IBM incarnation, was so memorably smashed in the 1984 Super Bowl ad for the first Apple Mac. Close quotes. In short, personal computing could never really happen in New York. It was too centralised. The decentralisation of Southern California and its wealth and creativity all lent to a conglomeration effect of personal computing in this area. Sometimes in history, the world and everything around it seems to happen in one place. London during the Victorian period, with the growth of the railways, the writings of people like Marx or Dickens, the building of the underground, the Great Exhibition of 1851, the building of the Houses of Parliament. Other areas, such as Vienna after the First World War, the centre of modernism, psychoanalysis, the home of Hitler, Trotsky, Tito, Freud and Stalin, all living there, could be examples of this. But for personal computing, it was Silicon Valley, starting in the 1960s, making it become the centre of the world. All the future personal computing revolutions seemed to come from this tiny part of California. The personal computing revolution was a very West Coast idea to empower the individual. In a 1995 Time article called, quote, We Owe It All to the Hippies, close quote, Stuart Brand wrote, quote, Hippie communalism and libertarian politics form the roots of the modern cyber revolution. 
Most of our generation scorned computers as the embodiment of centralized control. But a tiny contingent, later called hackers, embraced computers and set about transforming them into tools of liberation. That turned out to be the true royal road to the future. Youthful computer programmers who deliberately led the rest of civilization away from centralized mainframe computers. Close quotes. Stuart Brown had graduated in biology from Stanford, and after a two-year spell in the army as a photographer, went on the traditional life of wondering and experimenting with LSD. In 1962, in a clinical setting, he became one of the more famous hippies of his time, becoming a roadie and joining Ken Kesey's acid test parties. During one trip he looked up to the San Francisco sky and began to wonder what the Earth looked like from space. After an insistent campaign, NASA released a composite image of Earth from 21,000 miles up, which served as the inspiration and cover for the whole Earth catalogue, one of the most famous counterculture magazines. The magazine was noted for its combination of consumerism and communalism. The first edition featured items in a book on cybernetics and a programmable HP calculator. The premise of the book was that the tech and hippie lives could come together and complement one another. Steve Jobs later said about the whole Earth Catalogue, quote, When I was young, there was an amazing publication called the Whole Earth Catalogue, which was one of the Bibles of my generation. It was sort of like Google in paperback form. 35 years before Google came along. It was idealistic and overflowing, with neat tools and great notations. Close quotes. After publishing the first edition of the magazine, Stuart Brand met Douglas Engelbart, an engineer whose life passion was to invent ways that computers could augment human intelligence. After searching for a way to do this, he stumbled upon a way for people to visually portray the thinking they were doing and linking them so that other people could collaborate with them. Basically, he started to invent network computers with graphic displays. Engelbart had been working on a way for the human to interact with computers. His goal was to find the simplest way for a user to point and select something on screen. In 1961, the idea came to him of a device with two wheels that could calculate the area of a space by being rolled around its perimeter. He gave a sketch to a colleague, Bill English, and after noticing the cord worked best coming out of the back rather than the front, making it look like a tail, they decided to call it a mouse. Over the next six years, Engelbart would perfect the mouse. Engelbart was only a few blocks away from Stuart Brand, and they had been colleagues when Brand experimented earlier with LSD. In December 1968, the two were to demonstrate what was later to be known as the mother of all demos. At a computer industry conference in San Francisco, Engelbert, to an astonished audience, demonstrated opening a window, hypertext, graphic, word processing, and a collaborative real-time editor, demonstrating all the essential fundamental elements of modern personal computing in one session. It is one of the landmark events in computing. Ken Kesey was at the event and noted that computing was the next thing after acid. But in reality, 
The invention was largely spurred on by acid and the countercultural movement that LSD had created. Steve Jobs is well known for trying acid in the early 1970s. He once described LSD as one of the most important things he's ever done. LSD did not invent the computer, but it did invent the counterculture, which led to the personal computing revolution. The countercultural movement in the USA could not have happened without LSD's influence, and without the counterculture, the personal computer revolution and the internet, I doubt, would have happened, and if it did, it would have been in a very different way to how it turned out. I hope as this podcast unfolds, we will see more elements like this, how different inventions interplay with each other, and how they all interact into one melange of human creativity. So when we cover the episodes on the internet and computers, we should be discussing this area in more depth. But it's safe to say that the counterculture caused by LSD had a huge impact. All the best inventions, I think, are adaptable. They change over time, and what they can do changes too. LSD is changing too. Today, rather than taking large doses to induce a trip, there is a movement, once again focused on Silicon Valley, to start microdosing LSD. What is microdosing? Microdosing is taking sub-perpetual quantities of LSD, so it is below the threshold level. So at most, all you feel is a slight buzz, perhaps no more strong than a caffeine buzz. The inventor of LSD, Albert Hoffman, championed the idea of microdosing acid, saying it alleviated his depression and caused creativity to surge. During the 1960s, microdosing was being researched by people like James Fadman, but with the federal ban of LSD in 1966, this was all stopped. LSD now again is being viewed by some as a nootropic drug that could start enhancing elements of the brain, which is why it causes surges in creativity. There is some scientific research to back this up, with brain scans showing LSD creating a more integrated pattern of connectivity between separate brain networks. With such a competition in Silicon Valley, any edge is greatly pursued and so microdosing has become a growing fad amongst workers trying to gain that edge. Fadiman described microdosing as, quote, gentle stimulant and the feeling of mental clarity, so people's moods improve and they function more effectively, close quotes. We don't really know the impact, especially the long-term impact of LSD for clinical use, but many reports seem to be positive. Scare stories about LSD are increasingly seen as just that, scare stories. I'm not entirely sure what the future holds for LSD, whether studies show that it does improve creativity in the world, but I doubt they'll show LSD to be any sort of horror drug, warping the minds of teenagers and adolescents. It seems there is now a move towards the liberalisation of drugs and of research into drugs so we may find out for sure if LSD is as powerful as its proponents say. However, one thing we know for sure is that LSD has changed the world. It affected a generation and created an industry. Personal computers made by hackers and outcasts 
in Southern California. LSD was responsible for some of the greatest music of all time. Furthermore, and only time will tell, microdosing may play a part in the next 20 to 30 years of the personal computing revolution, something we may be at the precipice of. So for all the reasons we've talked about, LSD is the 83rd greatest invention of all time. Thank you.